We've been working in uh, South America, in Colombia, South America, for 30 years. And uh, we've been planting churches for the last 25 years. And a year ago, we decided to come back to live in Canada. And that's uh, tougher than you think. But uh, we're getting used to it. And uh, I'm still going back every three months to Colombia to continue to help with the church there and the leaders. And we've had the privilege of seeing uh, six churches now start in the city of Medellin. Medellin is a city of about four million people. Uh, so all of British Columbia almost in one city. And, uh, but it's been exciting. And uh, we would never have dreamt that God would do that. Uh, my wife and I are teachers. Uh, I'm a high school teacher. She's an elementary school teacher. Uh, I'm a phys ed teacher. And God had us planting churches. Uh, go figure. Uh, God does crazy things with our lives. And it's a good thing he knows what he's doing with our lives. And this morning I want to express some of that journey. Uh, because I believe this journey of what God does in every one of our lives is a journey. And I used to think salvation was this thing that I could put in a little package. Uh, you know, I could explain it. Well, I figured out that salvation is much bigger than I could ever explain. Uh, the longer I'm a Christian, the bigger it gets. And I hope that's what's happening in your life. Salvation, I used to think I understood what salvation was. Now I'm convinced that I only know a part of it. Uh, yes, there's a moment when we receive Jesus Christ into our hearts, but to understand salvation and understand everything that Christ has done for us, it's impossible. We'll be learning until we, I mean, until we get to heaven. And when Paul says, keep growing in the grace, it means that keep growing in understanding how big this package is. And you will continue to keep growing in understanding it. And I hope it makes you more and more grateful for what you have in Christ. So this morning, I'm going to take you to a passage that you know very well. I don't even hardly have to read it because you almost know it by heart. And that's the story of the prodigal son. And this morning, I want to talk about um, the whole issue of the concept we have of the father or of the boss. If you want to call him the boss, but I don't like that word. Your concept of the father affects how you work for him. The concept that I have of the Father affects how I work for him. I don't know how many people, I won't, don't even want to ask, because whenever I ask this in a more uh, private setting, almost everybody I ask, they say no. How many of you actually wanted to work for your earthly fathers? You see, there's a few of you maybe. But you know what, about 95% of us say no. That affects how you actually look at God as well, God the Father. Your earthly relationship with your earthly father affects how you actually see God the Father. And as you read the Word of God, and as you let the Word of God and the truth reveal itself to you, you begin to change your concept of that Father. And thank goodness we do. We start changing our concept of the Heavenly Father, and we don't look at him as our earthly father did or as we saw our earthly father so this morning i want us to go to luke 15 and we're going to read this story again luke 15 the prodigal son and 
maybe after this you'll say, boy, I never realized that the prodigal son said all that. Um, because I don't believe salvation is just a moment in time. If you read this passage, I used to think this was something that happened at a certain time in your life. And now I realize that the prodigal son is actually a description of your whole life. It's actually something that you are growing to understand. And as we go through it, you'll see why I say that I believe it's a process, not an event in time. It says this, and he said, verse 11, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred, occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything, anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your, and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he began, became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was dev has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My child... You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. In this story, we have two sons and a father. Both sons have misconceptions of who their father is. Not just one. Both of these sons have misconceptions of who their father is. As missionaries, our job is actually to replace ourselves and get out of the way. Train people and leave. And I remember reading this quote by Leith Anderson quite a few years ago. It says this, leaders who finish well are not those who run the last race before the track lights are turned off. 
Leaders who finish well are those who pass the baton to their successors to run the next leg of the race. Blessed are those who make their successors succeed. Now, I, I love that quote. But do you realize how hard that is? How many of us want to bless the successor and get out of the way? Fabulous. We have one healthy person here. <laughs> do you realize how demanded you need to be healthy to be able to do this? You don't have, you don't have to worry about your own agenda. But to do this, you have to be a healthy person, a very healthy person. When Romans says, those who are healthy are able to cry with those who cry and rejoice with those who rejoice. You're happy about somebody else's success. Even if you get out of the way. Even if it means you getting out of the way. We as missionaries have not finished our work until we can see long-term sustainable ministries and the local church finally investing in missional expansion of the kingdom of God, and they don't need us. Beautiful stuff. Hard stuff to accomplish, actually. Now, in order to be able to do this, I need a healthy concept of this father who I'm working for. And I have to deal with the misconceptions that I have of God. Because we ascribe to God so many earthly conceptions based on even our earthly relationship with our earthly fathers these two sons have to deal with their distortions in this story of their father they also have to deal with the distortions of what the father's desires are for them they also have to deal with the distortions of who they are not just the distortions they have of their father but even the distortions we have of ourselves some of us this morning may even have some of these distortions about god the father the god of impossible expectations the indifferent God, the emotional distant God, the abusive God, the unreal God, the God that even abandons. Maybe you have felt that at some point God, you know, wasn't there. But somewhere, some of us, all of us, have distortions that need to be healed, need to be changed. And in this story, they both have their distortions to deal with. How you perceive the boss, if that's what you want to call him, will affect how you work for him. And here in the parable, remember the parable of the talents? Parable of the talents, there's one who has five talents, one who has one, one has two. Why did the guy with one talent go hide his talent? Do you remember? What was his concept of God? Harsh. Taskmaster. The other two had a very different concept of who the father was. And it affected how they actually dealt with their talents. And it's the same way in this story. Brennan Manning says, Until I am convinced that I am a beloved son of God, all I do will be tainted with seeking and finding self. Now, we're going to look on here. You're going to see up here different process, different decisions we make throughout our life, okay? And I believe we make many decisions. Even as a Christian, we make many decisions based on what's in this story. And this, uh, the picture that's in front of us is Rembrandt's 
uh, picture of the prodigal son. And uh, if you haven't read Henry Nowen's book, The Return of the Prodigal, he writes a whole book based on this picture, basically. A great book. But um, the very first thing that happens in this story, we find in uh, verse 11. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. The first decision we always make, and we have, it becomes part of us even. We didn't even have to make this one. We live as if we don't need him. I think all of us can remember a time when we just lived as if we didn't need him. This son, by asking for the inheritance, is saying, you know what, Dad? It's as good as, I, I really don't care if you're alive or dead. And I can live my life without you. And I think we've all remember a day when that's how we lived. We lived as if we did not need him. And we actually, our, our thoughts are basically what he says here, give me. Just give me stuff. I don't need you. I need the stuff. Just give me. And that's how we start life. But then what happens in verse 14, the second decision we make in life, I think this is how we actually start our way home looking for God. In verse 14, it says, Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I think our, the next decision we make in life is this one. It's a crisis-based decision. A crisis-based decision on circumstantial events that happen in our lives. How many of us turn to God because the very first time you turn to God is because you knew you were a sinner? What I've found as we've planted churches, as we lead people to Christ, almost everyone, not, there are a few exceptions, but almost everyone comes to God through a crisis. They become in need. There is a need that, shows up in their life. They're in a marriage crisis, in a financial crisis. Uh, they're in a, um, maybe a relational crisis, but they're in a crisis. And it's the crisis that brings them to seek help. I remember a couple, a lady coming to me about 17 years ago, and she says, I just found out that my, my husband has been cheating on me for the last 20 years. And I didn't know it. With the same lady. I want to get a divorce. What can I do? She wasn't a Christian. She didn't believe in Christ. But she wanted to understand. She wanted some help. And I was the counselor. She didn't come looking for Christ. She didn't come not understanding her sin. She was saying, my husband's the one that sinned. I need some help. But it's almost always a crisis, just like in the story here. He becomes in need. His first reason for going back home isn't because he's a sinner. First reason he's going back home, he says, even the servants have more than I have to f eat here. 
I'm going to go back. Michael Horton says this, the bad news may be worse than we ever imagined, but the good news is that much better. Our felt needs, you see, our consumer needs are utterly trivial. If God said, okay, I'll fix three things in your life, tell me your three wishes, we'd undoubtedly pick the dumbest things. You wouldn't, yeah, probably. Our felt needs are shaped by our sinful nature. But God demands the right to tell us what our real needs are. Our real issues is that we are sinners, orphans in need of God's favor and love, not that we are consumers in need of a new product. But this prodigal son makes a decision based on circumstantial events. I remember when I first looked for God. It was a circumstantial event. My neighbor died, and I was only seven years old. And I remember asking my mother, what happened to the lady? My mother explained. She said, I think she went to heaven. I said, well, how, how does a person make sure they get to heaven? I sure don't want to go to the other place. So she explained to me what it meant, how to receive Christ. Guess what? I received Christ that day. Why do you think I received Christ that day? I wanted a life insurance. I wasn't really understanding too many things, but I sure didn't want to die and go to the wrong place. And I knew I was a sinner. I knew I was a bad kid, but I received Christ that day because of the circumstantial events of what had happened just around my house. But let's read on. The next decision this prodigal makes is in verse um, 18. He says this. After he realizes he's hungry and he needs food, he says, and he came to his senses, and then in verse 18 it says, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. He's now beginning to understand there is an issue, a guilt issue that he has to deal with. He has sinned against God and against his father. And I'm going to go there and I'm going to tell him I'm not worthy because your son make me was one of your hired men. And verse 20, and he got up and he came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What an incredible moment. And I call this, I call this the guilt-based decision. This son needs to be forgiven. And I'm sure he's going home like a dog with its tail between its legs. And his father runs out to him, and he can't imagine at that moment what happens. I didn't expect my dad to actually come out running. I thought I was going home, and I was going to have to start paying the bills that I had just wasted away. And here dad comes and embraces me as if I've done nothing. Now, I'm sure most of us here believe that salvation has to do with forgiveness of sins. And I sure am glad that that is true, that salvation has this piece of forgiveness of sins. But I remember being saved, but not really enjoying and being convinced Every night I would go 
to bed thinking, I'm still guilty. And I remember at 21, remember I made my first decision at 7. I remember at 21 reading this from Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And I was actually writing a thesis at Bible school at that time on self-forgiveness through Christ's forgiveness. And when I read that verse about through one sacrifice, I've been perfected. Wait a minute. God the Father sees me as perfect? I ran down to the counselor at the Bible school. I said, guess what? God sees me as perfect. And he said, what do you mean? You didn't understand that? Yeah, I'm sorry. I've been here three years, and I didn't figure it out. (laughs) For the first time, I began to enjoy justification, if we want to call it. Another piece of salvation. Some of you may have already figured that one out. Others here this morning still haven't figured it out. Still aren't rejoicing that in the presence of God the Father, this, your concept of God the Father, he's, you don't actually realize that he sees you perfect in Christ. What a load that was for me. I, I felt like I, I could, like an eagle that I could fly. Thomas Merton says this about this. Quit keeping score altogether. Surrender yourself with all your sinfulness to God, who sees neither the score nor the scorekeeper, but only his child redeemed by Christ. As we go through this process this morning, you're going to see yourself somewhere in this story. Somewhere. I know you will. Some of us are maybe between two and three. Today may be finally the day that you believe that God the Father sees you sinless in Christ. That's unbelievable. Fourth one happens, and I'm going to read a couple of the issues of basically the older brother. If you look at verse, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to read verse um, 29 when he goes out to look for the older brother. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. Verse 32. Sorry, verse 31. And he said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. I call this the blessings-based decision. Enjoying the blessings instead of the blesser. And those who were here the last two days, fabulous. My wife and I loved and enjoyed the seminar. And he was talking about idolatry a lot in that seminar. Here's what happens so often. This older brother, he's actually living for deferred blessings. He's actually waiting for the inheritance as well. That's why he stays home. It can be deferred blessings or even present blessings. In Latin America, the evangelical church is full of prosperity gospel. When I say prosperity gospel, most people are after the blessings rather than blesser in prosperity gospel. And many times, even as Christians, we can, be, we can fall back into this, just like this older brother. We can be the younger brother says, give me at the front end of this story, or the older brother who says, give it to me at the end anyway. That's what I'm working for. 
We enter the Christian life by getting saved, by trusting Jesus to pay for our sins. But we often live the Christian life by getting it, thinking we have to get it right so God will bless us big. That's what Larry Crabb says in The Pressure's Off. He also says, we value the better life of blessings over the better hope of intimacy with God. See, a lot of us are enjoying the blessing of being home. Yeah, we're a Christian. But I'll never forget what my son said. He was about 17 years old. And I asked him, when are you going to leave home? <laughs> this is my second son. Because my first son took off immediately. But my second son, I asked him, when are you going to leave home? And he looked at me as if I was crazy. And he said this to me. Father, why would I ever leave? I've got everything, man. Yeah, was, was he really excited about staying home with me or just, you know what I'm getting at. But many of us in this process of our Christian life, we enter periods when actually the blessings are more important than being with Father. And that takes us to the fifth process or decision that, and this comes out of this problem. Number five is a purpose-driven decision. Look at what the younger brother thinks in his heart as he comes home. This is what he says. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be what? Called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Or in, version, in other versions, make me as one of your servants. So he gets up, goes home, and listen what happens. It's amazing what happens. So he starts to recite what he's been thinking to his father. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his father doesn't let him finish the sentence. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet. Most of us enter into salvation with this same thought deep in our hearts. I am not worthy to be called the son or daughter of yours. Make me a servant. I began to work in Christian work. My parents were missionaries in Peru. And I remember teaching Sunday school at 12 years old. I've been serving in churches since 12 years old. By 15, I was doing evangelism on the streets of Alberta. By 17, leader of youth. By 20, the leader of the university group. By 24, 25, my wife and I are missionaries in Colombia. Talk about knowing what to be a servant. I know what that's all about. But I'm going to be very frank with you. Many times, the cause of Christ has been more important than Christ himself. Many times, I've been far more excited about the work of God than God himself. Now, there's reasons why that happens. As long as I'm trying to earn the Father's favor, 
I will never enjoy being a son, but continue to be a servant. Some of us, some of us who are sitting here in this room actually came to Christ through the four spiritual laws that someone has shared to us. And if you remember what the four spiritual laws, somebody's, if the, the main topic of the four spiritual laws is God has a wonderful plan for your life. And most youth between 20, any youth between even younger than 20 to about 35, when they come to Christ, guess what the most exciting thing is about becoming a Christian? Now they have a purpose to live for. And the purpose becomes more important than even Christ. Why do you think the Purpose Driven Life book was so popular with Christians and non-Christians? Because we all want to know, we all want that, an answer to that question, do I serve for something? We all have that need. But the problem is when we put the purpose before the relationship. And it's so easy to actually become idolatrous, not only of the things he gives us, idolatrous of even the work he gives us. For me, the work has been an idol many times. My wife and I enjoyed God's blessing over our work. We were starting churches amongst middle and upper class people. And within a year and a half of the first church, we had about 150 people, and I was so excited. I thought those were fabulous. We were in our second church, and God was doing the exact same thing. And still, Phil, Phil is insecure inside. Is God really happy with me? What I want to say for some of us who are here sitting this morning, success will never solve our insecurity. Even success, even God's blessings will not heal uh, the insecurity, the inborn insecurities we have of this son, this prodigal son who comes home and says, I am not worthy to be a son or a daughter. Just make me a servant. I want you to, after I share this little story, you're going to watch a little video about this. I remember after seeing God bless our first two church plants, I remember still questioning if God was happy with us, or happy with me anyway. I'm still wondering what this boss, this father, thinks of me. And I remember going to a conference on anointing. And I went to this conference, guess why? I wanted to know if I was anointed. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I'm a missionary. You guys are beginning to think, boy, these missionaries have really got a lot of issues. You don't have them? Okay. <laughs> and I remember going to this conference on anointing. And the man was speaking about Elisha and Elijah. And it was a great sermon. At the end of the sermon, he says, any of you pastors and missionaries need prayer? Come up front. So I went forward. I wanted prayer. And as he's praying for each of the pastors or missionaries, I'm listening to this guy. And this guy's from South Africa in Medellin, Colombia. God knows what he's doing. And he's praying for each guy. And I'm listening. And as a good Baptist, I'm thinking, if this guy 
is praying the same thing for everyone. He's a quack. But I begin to realize that he's praying something different for everyone. It seems like he's listening to God. He comes, finally he comes to me, and I'm standing there with a lot of expectancy, right? He looks me in the eye. He says, you've already got the anointing. Keep doing what you're doing. And never even prayed for me. Went to the next person. What do you think happened to me that day? God dealt with my unbelief. Because if I'm a son of his, I've got his favor on me. If you're a son or a daughter this morning, you've got his favor on you. You see, the calling of God to what he helps, he, he calls you to do means that his favor is already on you. When any calling that he gives on us means that his favor is already on us. And that day, finally I believed my misconception of God the Father changed. And that day I moved from this side being a servant to this side being a son. I began to rest in being a son. What incredible, it was almost like another salvation. And the people who were watching me, my wife and others, know something happened to me. The next Sunday they said, you're a different man. What happened to you? Well, I have to admit that I finally believed. I want you to watch this video before we go on. Thank you. 
In the story, the older son did not enjoy being a son, but was waiting for the rewards of servanthood. Our sixth decision that we have to make this morning, I would say some of us will have to make this sixth-based decision, and I call it the identity-based decision. Who am I this morning? Am I a servant or am I a son? Am I a servant or a friend of God? Do you remember what Jesus called his disciples at the end? I do not call you servants, but I call you friends. I believe that Jesus' ability to constantly give while he was here as a servant on the earth came out of the intimate relationship he had with the Father. If you read John 17, that's what I think comes out of there. In John 15, 15, as we heard, Jesus calls his disciples friends more than servants. Because for Jesus, relationships came before utilitarian job descriptions. Due to the relationship, they knew what they should do. Not vice versa. And he, Jesus being God, was inclusive rather than exclusive in his treatment of others. Even Jesus' relationship with his disciples is incredible. He actually not only loves them for what they're going to do for him, he actually loves them because he recognizes that they play a role even in his life. Jesus is who defines who I am this morning. He answers my greatest need of belonging, validation, and significance. But some of us are stuck at the cross. Now, don't get me wrong this morning. The cross is central to all our faith. But some of us are still stuck at the cross. We're so happy with the forgiveness of sins. But do you realize what the whole issue is here? In Corinthians 5, it says that Jesus came so that we could be reconciled with who? With the Father. Forgiveness is a means to another end. A greater end than just forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is fabulous. I tell you, the day I realized that, I was so thankful. But for 20-some years, I wasn't enjoying being a son, adopted. The forgiveness allows me to be adopted. 
allows me to have a relationship with the Father. And in this story, he's actually wanting us. That's why he stops his son when he comes back. And he doesn't even let him say, I am not worthy to be a son. Let me be a serve. He shuts him down. We all believe that as Christians we're adopted into the family and adopted as sons of the Father. But you know what? Just because that's true doesn't mean that I'm living that, enjoying that. Do you realize even as physical adoption happens, many times children that are adopted cannot enjoy their new parents because of what's happened in the past? Many of us this morning know we're adopted, but are you enjoying being a son or a daughter of his. Now, you may think that's where the, the story ends. It doesn't end there. Let's go to the seventh decision. Deciding to rest in his favor. What happens at the end of the story? He shuts him down and says, get the kid, get the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Now, remember, this is the third parable of three. Remember the other two parables that go with this one? The lost Sheep and the lost coin. What happens in both of those parables as well? There is a party in both one. And here there's a party. This morning I want to ask you, have you perceived the party in favor of you? My wife and I have been working with pastors and leaders for the last 25 years and Mostly in the last five years, we actually ran a retreat center for the last five years for leaders and pastors from all denominations, and they would come to our home. And we would ask them almost every time this question. Somewhere in the weekend or the week, we would ask them this question. Guess what? The majority of pastors even said, no, I have not perceived the party. Have you ever perceived? We... We love preaching it because in this, John himself, uh, Luke himself says, there's a part, every time someone repents, what happens in heaven? There is rejoicing with the angels. Easy to preach this stuff. Have you ever perceived that rejoicing over you? We can even become, get to the point of being a son or a daughter, but have you actually perceived the party? Enjoying the party in favor of your life. Maybe you've enjoyed the Father's presence, but today he's actually asking you to recognize his joy over you. You see, when we have gotten there, we can enjoy our, others, our other brother's parties. The older son is not able to enjoy the party on favor of his younger brother. Because he's not enjoying the father either. He's staying home for another reason as well. Yes, he's been an obedient son, but he's actually not enjoying father. In being loved, I can be loving. If you haven't seen the party in favor of you, because the party for me represents honor. Honor over your life. If we haven't perceived God the father honoring us, where will we seek it? Where will we go for it? Where I have gone for it. 
I've gone to other brothers and sisters for it, and I've even gone to my work for it. We need to perceive the honor that God gives each one of us so that we will not continue to seek it in the wrong place. Because if we seek it in the wrong place, we go back to idolatry. I'm convinced today more than ever that it's harder to receive than to give. Most of us sitting here have far more trouble receiving this truth than serving him. Henry Nowen says, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us beloved. I keep running around looking for someone or something able to convince me of my belovedness, prove that I'm worth something. I do something relevant, spectacular, or powerful so that I can earn the love that I so desire. When you lose touch with your chosenness, you expose yourself to the temptation of self-rejection. Remember our son at 17 asking me, saying, why would I ever leave home? He also asked us a very revealing question. At the same, almost at the same time, he said this. Did you guys plan my birth? Was I a planned son? And behind that question, I knew what he was trying to ask. Did you guys really want me? He was trying to answer that in his own heart. Was I a wanted son? As we've gone through these seven steps or seven different decisions, he's trying to change our concept of who he is. But he also in this, in this story changes the concept of who you are. He wants you to change the concept you have of yourself. And how does he do that? He gives us new clothes because some of us New clothes represents cover the shame that most of us have felt. And this morning he comes and says, I want to clothe you. I don't want you to keep on looking at yourself with shame. He gives you a new ring because a ring was represented identity. You are the son of. He gave him new shoes. And the shoes, many people think that the shoes represent freedom of choice because the slaves didn't have shoes because if they had shoes, they could run away. But he gives a son shoes because he wants our choice of love to be a choice because we're sons, not slaves. He gives him a home, walls of security, and he gives him a party of honor and joy. I don't know if you're like me, but it's taken me 40 years to begin to understand how much he wants me to feel at home. Many of us read the story of, Zac of, of um, Zacchaeus, and it says, Jesus says, it is necessary that I come to your home today. And we love that story. Do you realize how much he desires to come to your home today and make you feel at home? He wants you to feel so at home that it made it possible that he could be with you 
by the Holy Spirit. My wife doesn't even want to do that. I can't believe that this God wants to live inside of this body and be with me 24-7. That's crazy. I've said many times, I think the Holy Spirit is the most valiant of the Trinity, that he's willing to live here. This morning, God wants us to be sons before servants, but he also wants you to be a son before a brother or sister. If you're not a son or daughter, you will seek this stuff through the sons, brothers and sisters. I used to be an addict of the church. And I'm not saying that the church is important. It's very important. The family is incredibly important. But I used to actually ask that the family supply what only he can supply. This father is the first and foremost place that we need to come to. And the older brother cannot enjoy, he cannot forgive his brother because he's not enjoying being a son either. You'll only be able to forgive truly if you're actually enjoying being a son or a daughter. I want to finish by saying this. The father and boss, this father, and if you want to call him the boss, is the most generous boss in the world. It is, he is the most generous person to work for. We've been working for him, and I've been working for him basically for 40-some years. He's the most generous boss there is in this world. And I'll tell you just one example why I believe that. How many of you would have a job next Monday if tomorrow morning you called in and said, to your boss, um, I, I've decided not to come to work today. And he says, why? Are you sick? No, no, I just decided I don't want to go today. And then you would go, and he said, well, I'll give you the day. I'll give you the today. Sure, that's okay if you need it. But then you follow it up by saying, guess what, boss? Really, I don't want to come this week. How many of you would have a job next Monday? I don't think any of us. How many times have I said to this father, this boss, not today, not this week, not even this month? And some of us have even had the gall to say not even this year. And how has he treated you and me? Unbelievably generous. The application, there's three questions there. Where are you in this process? God, I hope this morning is bud moving you just forward in this process. That's why I believe this story is a lifelong process. And I hope he's moving you. What distortions is God treating in your life today even? Or maybe distortions of yourself. How are you defining yourself? Are you trying to define yourself by yourself? Or are you allowing, actually, him to define who you are through Christ? When you worship together at the table and have communion together, at the table of Christ, there are no such things as half-sisters and half-brothers. I'm going to invite the musicians to come up. We're going to finish by worshiping. But I hope this morning there in the silence, in the honesty of your heart, you're allowing the Holy Spirit to convince you. Maybe there's unbelief like in my life that needs tearing down and saying, God, help my unbelief.
Maybe that's what you need to pray this morning. Maybe some of us need to repent of how we've actually treated this incredibly generous father of ours. But be willing to actually be honest and maybe even ask for help this morning from someone. To pray together with someone to help you just move forward. Thank you.